0: News,
1: weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi.
2: Things
3: are
4: quite hectic these days, trying to combine business with uh, hockey. And uh, if the business uh, that I am involved in continues as it is, I may have to consider retirement before I would like to. That's the Tim Horton Donut Emporium. Yes, uh, Tim Horton Donuts, Ward. And uh, it's very nice to be to let me get a word in about it.
5: That's amazing, is it? That is the late, great Tim Horton talking about his passion for donuts, obviously, and coffee. I mean, he's known for loving hockey and coffee and donuts, but you know what else you can add to that list? Cars. Unfortunately, he also loved driving fast because in 1973, he was gifted a Di Tomaso Ford Pantera by Punch Imlac. They were trying to get him to play another season. They were luring him with this fancy car. Well, he loved that car, and he actually died four months later in a high-speed crash while driving it. Now, over the years, many people have wondered, well, what happened to that car? Edward Brown must have wondered the same thing. The Toronto writer and author spent a lot of time trying to track that car down, and joins us now to talk about that journey. Thanks so much for being here. So it's my pleasure. Thank you, Simi. How did you get started on this? I've always
2: wondered about the whereabouts of the car. I've seen that photograph over the years. And um, I thought it, 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 it had something had to become of that car. And um, as I began to research it, I assumed that it had been crushed because of the morbid interest by um, hockey fans who wanted to get a piece of that car. But I pursued that and found that, in fact, parts of the car were still around.
5: Okay. And how did you track them down?
2: I, 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 I'm, I'm pretty good at finding things. And I just started with basic uh, VIN number search to see if the car was still registered in in the province or anywhere in the country, but that didn't lead anywhere. So the next place I went to was online, where everybody searches for things. And that led me to a few uh, blogs and um, some comments stating that perhaps the car was around in the east coast of Canada. And I reached out to a few people, and it was just a process of uh, tracking down. Um, I, I, I called a number of car enthusiasts and you know, hobbyist car collectors in the East Coast, and after I exhausted those, I started to call uh, racetrack enthusiasts because I thought, oh, perhaps it's a stock car, and that's, uh, that's where I, I hit gold right there.
5: Wow. Okay. So where had it been all this time? Like, I understand there were some people were concerned, I think rightfully so, that it would become some kind of object of fascination because of what was associated with it.
2: it, it that, that's true. It was, um, it was uh, well, first of all, what, what, I, what I wanted to do to accompany this story was to find a photograph of the car in its original state, that because we, we get a real bad representation of what the vehicle is like when the only photo we have is this one, that and there's several others similar in circulation. So I, I didn't know what condition the car would be in or even what it would, um, what would remain of it. So I, I, I wanted to find that, and I still do actually. I, I'd like to find an original photograph of the car n- not demolished.
5: So did somebody come across it then, Edward, and say, I need to make sure this car stays preserved?
2: No. So interesting. I think um, the car was taken to a a wrecking yard here in Toronto and the wrecking yard and, and this is speculation because I, I, I couldn't find anybody connected with this yard. The wrecking yard just coincidentally was closing because the highway 401 had, uh, the, was being expanded. This is in 74. And I think that they were closing down this yard and they were getting rid of all their um, possessions. And however the East coast connection found out about this car, I don't know, but it was put on a flatbed and shipped out um, to the East Coast. But it's it's very intriguing because the individual who bought the vehicle, Don Alexander, has the same surname as the gentleman who owned the scrapyard, Grant Alexander. But when I spoke to Don's son, Kirk, he said there's no familial connection. So I, I really don't know how that happened, to be honest.
5: Okay, that is a mystery then. So what do we know about the car today?
2: So the car today... And um, I'm not really a stock car racing expert, but they seem to go through engines uh, very quickly. And so a portion of, portions of the engine are still around. I know that Kirk told me that the dipstick is in his brother's uh, basement, hanging on his wall. Because of the nature of the, the design of the car, the engine was in the rear of the car. So the dipstick is about four feet long, he said. I wasn't actually. I wanted to see the ca- a car myself, but I, I they, they only made about seven thousand of these cars, so they're very rare. And parts of the engine have been sort of spread out throughout the province. I know Kirk told me his brother sold the engine, then he got the engine back. So right now, I think parts of the car are out there still, but. I'm not sure exactly where.
5: So it's still a mystery then.
2: It, it, I, I, would, I would say that it is um, because of the nature of, of what, you know, that uh, sport of stock car racing. I think that there's likely little bits of that car in many different stock cars of that, you know, Ford uh, on that Ford line.
5: That's so interesting then, because some of them have some of those cars, those stock cars have done very well, too, haven't they?
2: They have, in fact, the stock car that it went, the engine, the 351 went into, I found out who built the stock car. That was built in in Ontario by a gentleman named Ken Stewart. He still is, uh, he still is in that uh, industry. But um, it was a coincidence that he sold the car to somebody out in the East Coast, and that car needed an engine, and Don Alexander got his hands on that car and put the tim horton engine into that car which then sort of had a second life and it's it's somewhat ironic because tim horton's um you know he was a reckless driver and speed was an issue and the fact that the engine ended up in a stock car which gained quite a reputation in the east coast circuit is is uh, is another nice detail to that story
5: it is amazing to me, though, that after all the years, I mean, he died in 1974, um, actually February 21st, so yep. just just past the anniversary there, and and that it's still remembered like this, so that people, you can still track it down.
2: I think that you, you, I was born uh, just a few years after this, uh, before this happened, and I remember people talking about it, but I didn't quite get the importance of it. I was too young, but as I was um, researching this story, I was... I was really impressed by the number of people of a certain age who have a flashbulb memory of where they were when they got the news that Tim Hortons died. And we see Tim Hortons' name everywhere. It's ubiquitous. But I had to remind myself that it was a man and a father, and he would be 94 now if he was still alive. So we kind of forget the fact that Lost in this tragedy is is this um, individual who the was person. sort of pursued, yeah, yeah, pursued by a desire to overcome or a fear of returning to that poverty he knew as a child. But he never got to enjoy the fruits of his labor. That's
5: so true. Uh, thank you, Edward, for telling that story for us this morning.
2: Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you for an interest.
5: Well, that's Edward Brown. Edward is a writer and author based in Toronto. Who uh, he just wrote this great piece actually about trying to track down the car that Tim Horton was driving uh, when he was killed. This was a pretty fancy car. And as you can tell, it took him quite a while and searched all over the country for it. And it, we do forget how young Tim Horton was. He was only 44 years old when he was killed in that car accident. That was February the 21st of 1974.
0: This is Mornings with Simmy. Where's the beef? Some
3: hamburger places give you a lot less beef on a lot of bum.
0: Where's the beef?
3: At Wendy's, we serve a hamburger we modestly call the single. And Wendy's single has more beef than the Whopper or Big Mac. At Wendy's, you get more beef and less bum. Hey,
5: where's the beef? Such a classic commercial, right? Well, you think about that and you think very fondly of Wendy's. Maybe not after what we're about to tell you. Our Scott Schantz is with us now. Scott, I got to tell you, this one makes my blood boil.
1: I think that this, I think you're justified in having your blood boil Thank over this you. one, Simi.
5: Thank you. Okay, tell us what this is.
1: Wendy's is going to, by the way, Wendy's is the second biggest fast food chain in the United States. It's huge, 6,000 restaurants. And they are going to be starting out trying surge pricing. Surge pricing is what Uber does when. Uh, things get busy. During rush hour, it costs more to take an Uber than it does when things right. are slow. Wendy's is going to test out the menu being more expensive when they're busier and less expensive when they're not busy. So
5: theoretically, what they're going to do is they're going to install these new menu boards that will reflect that. So let's say you're standing in a long lineup. The price could literally change from the time you're in the back of this lineup to the front of this lineup because of how busy they are.
1: That's right. A single item like a burger could go up by as much as a dollar. If there's a lunch rush or a dinner rush, it could go up by a dollar, which is a lot. Uh, They're spending $20 million to test this out, and they think that it could uh, definitely uh, show some return for them. Everybody's trying to make ends meet. Wendy's says that they're in the same boat as everybody else with inflation and all of these different things, so they have to get creative with ways to, to make make the ends. And if it doesn't, if people stop going and it drives more business throughout the day when things are cheaper, that's good for them as well.
5: Yeah. But then they'll just raise the price on those times too. I mean, there's p- no potential, escaping potentially, this thing. Potentially, yes. But I, yeah. It I just, will tell you, Scott, I'm a bit of a grudge holder. Okay. okay? I can be quite petty. And hearing this kind of made me so angry. And I, I love Wendy's. Yeah. I think they have a great burger. I if I find out that the Canadian Wendy's is doing this because to be clear this is the American yes. Wendy's if I find out that the Canadian Wendy's is also going to adopt this I will stop going.
1: It does feel a little bit uh, aggressive. It feels a little bit um, like it lacks they? respect for the customer, yes. you know, who like yourself has been loyal for a long time. Like you say, you love the Wendy's burger. So what about this though, Simi? If it was instead of say, say we come up with a general price, like they raise the price of everything and uh, then- Which they already which have. Which they have. Yes. And everybody's doing that. But then, you know, some places like happy hour, things are cheaper during- During happy hour because they're trying to drive business to places where it's less busy at that time, right? Like three to six in the afternoon or after 10 o'clock at night. That's when bars and restaurants do happy hour. It's the same idea, but just in reverse. It's cheaper when it's not busy.
5: Here's the thing, though. You know, surge pricing might work for Ubers or hotels. You know why? Because there's a limited supply so they can get away with it because we still need to call that cab. You still need to call that ride. I have no endless choice. There's an endless choice. No shortage of places to go and stop. In fact, I might just go, yeah, I'll just go home. And it's also, yeah, it's not like they're going to sell out. That's right. Too many options. To go to, to stop at a place that is going to charge me more just because it's busy. That I feel like now you re- you are taking advantage. And, and uh, company, you should be happy that you're busy. All these people are
1: coming here to they're give customers. you their hard-earned money. That's yes. what they're doing. But again, when I think about it, Simi, like a, a bar doesn't run out of beer, just like a restaurant doesn't run out of burgers. You
5: just make more.
1: But but they, they lower the price. It's, do you see what I'm saying? How it's the same thing flipped. They lower the price when it's not busy. This is an example of raising the price when not going it is to, yeah, busy. Yeah, exactly.
5: They're not going to lower the price when it's not busy. Those prices are going to stay the same. They're just going to raise the price when it's busier. Right. So, so let's say we raise the price on
1: everything on the menu by a dollar. And then during the morning hours and the, the in-between hours when it's not busy, everything just becomes a dollar cheaper and they call it happy hour.
5: Like we wouldn't be that upset by that. Would we? I don't know. It's just the idea, the way they phrase this. For sure. The CEO of Wendy's in the United States, and again, we don't, there's no mention of this happening in Canada, right? But Wendy's in the United States is moving forward with this, where they will adopt surge pricing. So your baconator is going to be a dollar more during the lunch rush. And Simi,
1: I just, I will venture a guess here. That this is the first of many, many restaurants and other businesses where we're going to start to see pricing like this come into effect.
5: Would you go to a restaurant that had surge pricing?
1: I think it depends on the restaurant, and I think it depends how much it surges.
5: But if you need to and you want it that badly, then yeah, I think I would. I think I think restaurants and all of that's a very fickle business. Don't turn off the customer. There's too many choices, too many up and coming places that we can go to. Instead. I don't know.
1: I think this is the future.
5: Oh, what a nightmare! If you want to weigh in, Simi at cknw.com, would you still go to a fast food restaurant if it adopted surge pricing? This is mornings with Simmy. all right it is time for us to check in with Vaughn Palmer from the Vancouver Sun this morning so Vaughn you know we're kind of we're expecting snow over here
4: snow over there yeah I was just digging out the beachware over here in Victoria <laughs> now I'm in the south of British Columbia
5: yeah I love this joke because we know we know, <laughs> know. it's not true is it cold A flower or is, it cold?
4: Count is coming you know BC ferries is showing us pictures pictures yet of what the next generation of ferries are going to look like. And there are some people probably in the lineup of the ferries figuring maybe the ship will be in service by the time they get to the other side of the street.
5: You know I love von Palmer comedy. It is just like know, a sharp. It's, it's, it's a terrible. I told
4: you it's one of my hobbies. <laughs> what are you going to do?
5: I know. What are you going to do? So if it does start snowing, you have to let us know over in Victoria. Oh, yeah. Okay. I know. Oh, yeah, I know I'll it doesn't. I'll phone it in. Breaking Please news. do. Please do. Uh, we're going to talk time about a hundred years. It's snowed in Victoria. <laughs> or like two weeks ago when we were talking yeah, to you. That too. But yeah. Let's talk about childcare this morning because I feel like this is a bit of a changing, developing story here as we're digging <clears> down into the numbers of what's going on in this province.
4: Yeah, there's a, a a whole school of governing called deliverology, and it's all about the gap between the promises you make and whether or not you actually deliver on them and how challenging it can be in government to deliver. And I, this one is fascinating to me because you go back to 2017, and one of the dramatic additions to the NDP election platform, which was there in 2017, and it wasn't there in the election they lost in 2013. And that was a commitment to $10 a day childcare. It's a very flashy promise. It wasn't fully costed, but it was costed. And it had huge appeal, Simi, to any working couple looking for childcare, any single parent looking for childcare, especially in Metro Vancouver, uh, the suburbs here on the island, but really all over British Columbia. Very flashy promise, one of the things that put John Horgan into government. Here we are eight years later, almost, and we're going, how's the deliberology going? And there's a lot of controversy around this because it's clear that the NDP is falling well short of its own targets for providing actual $10 a day childcare. People looking for it, it's hard to find. I'm told there are communities in British Columbia where it might be easier to find a unicorn than to find a space at $10 a day. So, and it's blowing up as a controversy right now because of reports, because of the budget and uh, the government's on the defensive.
5: Okay, so then what what do we know here about what we are providing in B.C.?
4: Well, uh, the most recent number that I've seen is there are 14,000 spaces in B.C. that actually meet the definition of actual $10 a day childcare that's new, that's been provided under the program. Um, Stats Canada did a survey that was out at the end of last year and it found that there were more British Columbians than ever reporting enormous difficulty in finding any kind of childcare so or at least affordable Uh, almost 60% of the people in the StatsCan survey said it's just an ordeal. It's a nightmare. And I'm sure there are many listeners out there who have had the experience. That's almost 60% up from less than 50% uh, 2019. Uh, Stats Canada said last December, there were fewer British Columbia children in actual childcare in 2023 than four years earlier before the pandemic. So some of that's blamed on the pandemic, but some of it is just how challenging it has been for the new Democrats to deliver on what they promised. And so me, the other thing that blew up last week around this that really dramatized it was the provincial budget. Because if I hadn't seen the numbers in the NDP's budget, I would have been skeptical, but it's there in their budget. For the year ahead, the one starting April the 1st, Ottawa is spending more, a lot more providing childcare in British Columbia than the New Democrats are spending (laughs) providing childcare in British Columbia. Almost all the new money in the BC budget for childcare, all the new money, 85% of it is coming from Ottawa. It's not coming from the provincial government. It's not coming from the New Democrats. In the year ahead, the federal government will be spending $170 million more Providing childcare
6: in BC. Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, ArmorAll, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May
1: 31st, we'll give you five dollars for every twenty you spend on ArmorAll products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine—you name it. Find out how to get your five dollar rebate at ArmorAll.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply.
5: This episode is brought to you by Shopify.
4: Providing childcare in BC. That's a that's a dramatic gap, Simi.
5: Do we know what the holdup is? Like what are the talent? What do they say when they're asked about this?
4: Well, yeah, it's interesting. The premier got asked this twice yesterday, not once, twice. So Rob Shaw, our friend, asked it, and then Richard Zessman, our friend, asked it, and neither one of them got an answer. The Premier did not address the funding gap at all. He sidestepped. He talked about how all the wonderful things the new Democrats have done to bring childcare to BC, and he talked about the one genuine challenge, which is trained, professional, uh, qualified child care workers.
5: Because they're hard to find.
4: They are hard to find. And that's true. And we haven't been training them at the pace which we need to do. And the pay isn't good enough to persuade people to go for that job instead of some other job out there. So it's a genuine problem. But At the same time, if you're not at least going to match federal funding here in the province, like what hope is there of ever getting to that target? At the rate we're going, there are children that will be in university before the the child spaces that were promised are available.
5: Vaughn Palmer from the Vancouver Sun this morning, breaking down more about the kind of consequences after effects of the tabling of the provincial budget last week. And I've been waiting for this one, Vaughn, because the credit rating agencies are weighing in.
4: Yes, we had two credit rating agencies, two of the big four, weighed in yesterday on the BC budget. So we heard from Moody's and we heard from Morningstar. Uh, interesting. The Moody's was the most critical. Moody's said the amount of debt that they're adding here and the size of the deficits is going to limit the province's uh, fiscal room going forward, and they were credit negative. So that hints that when Moody's full report comes down later this spring, there may well be the first downgrade the New Democrats have gotten while in office. Morningstar um, also concerned, uh, also saying the numbers are headed in the wrong direction, saying the province's fiscal situation is deteriorating, but no change in the credit rating. They just said... Because of the long term strength of the B.C. economy, because B.C. governments tend to outperform projections, because there's so much money set aside in contingencies, they think that there's no need for downgrade at this time. So, you know, uh, Katrina Conroy said British Columbia's financial situation, its debt, all of that is affordable and manageable for now. Yes. But uh, there may be a downgrade coming later this year. That matters for a couple of reasons. I mean, you know, when the Democrats in opposition, they, tach, they just scoff at the AAA credit rating that the Liberals had or anything. But when they got into government, they realized that these ratings are kind of useful in a couple of ways. One, they tell you how you're doing compared to other Canadian provinces. And the answer on that one is B.C.'s doing much better. The other thing, the Democrats used started in power, the Horgan government putting out news releases <laughs> announcing that we still had a, a AAA credit rating. We still had a top-flight double A high rating, and the reason they did that was they said, "You see, we're we're doing we're spending more money, and we've even raised taxes, but we're managing the province's finances very well too." And the credit rating agencies don't much care; they just look at the numbers and they say, "Well, you know, the new Democrats actually were doing a pretty good job." It'll be interesting to see, Simi whether they change their minds because, and we've talked about this, the E.B. government has changed the approach to provincial finances that was here under John Horgan. Horgan ran four surplus budgets in six tries. Nobody is going to expect David Eby to do that. He's on the track for deficits and debt.
5: And I heard that message too when he was talking to business leaders last week and that what he's saying to them is, what do you want us to cut? And so it's almost like he's already defending that too. And then you get like the BC Conservatives yesterday with their announcement about getting rid of all portables in Surrey. And I thought, well, that's expensive too. So is there going to be company on this?
4: Well, it, it is expensive. Although, you know, again, a lot of us went through that budget on Thursday with a question in our minds, which is, what are we getting that's new for all this new debt? I mean, again, Horgan, uh, you don't need to look at right-wing governments. Horgan managed four surpluses in six budgets, and he had to manage through an actual crisis, through the COVID-19 pandemic, and he still managed to deliver mostly balanced and surplus budgets. So I think the the question with the EB government is more, why are you able to deliver so little in the way of anything new for so much debt? Uh, you mentioned Surrey. Well, you know, uh, it's been reported a couple of times there's a crisis in the school supply in Surrey, uh, a huge capital plan in the budget, and so far they haven't announced any new schools in Surrey. And uh, we just talked about the problem with childcare, right? It's a very ambitious promise, but what have they delivered on it? I, I think and you could make an argument that you should be trying to keep the promises you made and ma- and manage, yes, what you have before you start yes. adding new stuff to the government um, and try to figure out why Horgan was able to manage And you're not able to manage. Absolutely.
5: Yes. That sounds too practical, Vaughn. Come on. What are you talking about? There we go. Uh, That wasn't sarcasm for a change. No, no, I I buy that. But what about, okay, so will it be a matter of waiting to see then what these contingency funds are used for? Because I know the credit rating agencies even pointed that out.
4: Yeah, I mean, the credit rating agencies pointed out that there is $11 billion over three years in contingency funds, and that's just money that hasn't been allocated to anything. And in the past, we've seen big contingency funds when the government was in the middle of wage negotiations and didn't want to give away how much money it was prepared to pay to settle the contracts. Well, there's no major contracts this year. So what's the $11 billion for? We assume, because they've hinted, that some of the capital money will be going to build schools and survey and projects that'll be announced fairly soon. The one on the Olympic uh, grounds or the uh, Olympic school in uh, Vancouver, as it's known at uh, Falls Creek. Um, we assume that some of it, there's going to be an election platform and some of the election platform will be paid for. They'll say, well, we asked where are you going to pay for it? They're going to say, well, we've got those contingencies. If they don't semi use all of the contingency money, then if there's anything left over, that will actually reduce the deficits and can be used to pay down some debt. So that's where the credit rating agencies are going. Yeah, we don't like where this is headed, but we're also going to make allowance for the possibility that the BC government will do what it's done in the past, which is, you know, overestimate how bad things are going to be, and then outperform it. And at the end of the year, do a little victory lap and say, hey, look, we projected a giant deficit. It's not that big. Yay, us. That's BC government financing. It's been the case for a long time, going back to WAC Bennett. So if they manage that, they will be able to say, we did better than expected. They may be able to hold on to their credit rating, but we won't know really until after the votes are counted because they closed the books on a BC financial year in July in the following year. So hang in there for July
5: 2025,
4: <laughs> and we'll know how they actually did.
5: Well, something to look forward to, I guess. Uh, Vaughn, thank you.
4: Bye-bye. Cindy.
5: That is Vaughn Palmer there from the Vancouver Sun. This is Mornings with Simi. I do feel like we are in a bit of the calm before the storm right now. I know you hear that weather forecast. We are expecting it to be much different this afternoon. Uh, Heavy rain, wet snow, all of that coming our way. But what time is the key, right? So we will be having a conversation with Mark Madriga about that coming up in about half an hour's time where he will let us know. But in the meantime, keep it tuned in right here for the very latest on how all of that is going to impact you. Right now, though, we're going to talk about an IRCA. What is that? And why have they become so important when it comes? to the sentencing process here in Canada. There is a lot of debate about these, actually. They are impact of race and culture assessment reports. And we are going to talk about them now with the help of our next guest, Dr. Kamisha Siblis, who's an assistant professor of sociology and criminology and director of the Black Studies Institute at the University of Windsor. Dr. Sibilis, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. How important have these reports become in the sentencing process?
0: Um... To, uh, to an extent they are they are vital because they have been um, really instrumental in introducing some of the systemic um, races, uh, racism and other systemic factors that impede and infringe upon on uh, the offender's life and really serve to constrict and construct the sort of their decisions um, ultimately leading to their uh, their conviction and sentencing, and so it's, a, it's they're like they're a critical components, um, but it's it's really it's a step in the right direction. It's, it's one 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 critical part of the process.
5: Okay, how common are they? Are these just recently kind of coming into fashion? So
0: they were introduced ten years ago. Um, started in Nova Scotia, and um, and so they are they're increasing. In, uh, in their use now. Um, in Nova Scotia, they are mandatory. Um, in other provinces, other provinces are just beginning to, to take them up in their use. Um, in Ontario, they, they start to uh, become, you know, utilized more frequently after the R.V. Morris case um, around five years ago, where, um, where the Supreme Court really uh, took it into um, judicial notice that there are these systemic factors, and they must be taken into consideration um, for for criminal criminal proceedings um, and sentencing involving black offenders.
5: Okay, and so what goes into putting it together? What sort of information is in there? So they are um, a combination of different
0: factors, right? So there's a, you know an in depth social history um, report which talks about the uh, talks about the the subjects life um their experiences in their neighborhoods their experiences with their families maybe you know if they if their parents were immigrants what were the economic conditions in the places that they have immigrated from um what what were the 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 neighborhood characteristics did they did they grow up in poverty did they grow up in you know under different circumstances uh was child welfare ever involved um how how the how various institutions uh, may have in, uh, played factors in their lives and really um, given the, gave them a sense of who they are and what their possibilities were. So oftentimes, it you know, um, it could be again the you know it could be the criminal justice system, it could be in interactions with the police and uh, communities that are that are over-surveilled. Um, it could be interactions with uh, with medical profession professionals and um, and of course with
5: with their schools. It's, it sounds like a roadmap, right? It sounds like how did we get here?
0: Uh, absolutely, it is definitely a roadmap, and then there are clinical factors as well, right? And so, you know, does anxiety, does post-traumatic stress disorder, take um, uh, account for some of these choices?
5: Do you think they work? like, because they sound like a good idea, Doctor Siblis, but do you think they work? Are they effective? They, it's
0: it's it's, a, it's kind of complicated, right? They they are a good idea if the system's ready for them. Um, to date, it doesn't. It doesn't. It doesn't seem as though that is the case because they are. Um, they are. they sort of. They could be reinforcing the dominant narrative around deficiency in black in black communities if the if the state is not willing to really be accountable for some of the ways in which um, they've they've really shaped these individuals' lives in the end and black uh, black people's lives on a whole.
5: Right. So is this something that we need to put into the system, perhaps in a more structured fashion and not not just for, you know, figuring out how this has impacted black people, but also, let's say, indigenous people? Can we broaden this? So indigenous people
0: actually started this. Right. So this is um, these are. Sort of modeled after the Gladue reports that Indigenous people have had in uh, in effect for for a couple of decades now at least, and uh, they, and, it, and it has been systemic. And what we've what we've known is that making sort of uh, integrating it systemically hasn't really changed much. Right, and what happens is. Uh, you know the quality of these reports be- become really watered down, um, and it's really sort of formulaic in, our, uh, in in the way that they're implemented, and and it doesn't really it hasn't really impacted the number of of uh, Indigenous people that are incarcerated.
5: So then, how can we improve this? How do we make sure that these are used, you know, the right way for for good impact? Really, it's around the
0: the, the overhaul of the of the criminal justice system on a whole, right? And we we are sort of stuck. And indoctrinated in, in really narrow um, outlooks around how how we uh, around discipline and punishment, right? The fact that justice is really uh, inextricably linked with punishment um, and and punishment of an individual, rather than looking at sort of state reform and uh, and, and and retribution in those ways, um, it really you know it really uh, entrenches these, the ways that we do things and, and, and the outcomes, right? The outcomes aren't changing because the way that we're, we're seeing um, uh, the oppressed and the oppressor hasn't right. changed.
5: So you're saying if we need to do this, let's do this properly. We need to fix the way we're like, the idea is good, but let's make sure we're doing this properly.
0: Absolutely. It's really the system that it's integrated into that needs to
5: change. All right. Well, Dr. Siblis, thank you for talking to us about this and explaining it to us this morning.
0: Oh, my pleasure. Thank you for having me.
5: That's Dr. Kamisha Sibilis, who's an assistant professor of sociology and criminology and director of the Black Studies Institute at the University of Windsor, talking about the sentencing process in Canada. So in in some provinces, it is optional to use these types of sentencing reports. Nova Scotia, it is mandatory. But are they working as intended? That was a really interesting way to learn about that, too. This is Mornings with Simi. But I hate changing passwords. I mean, don't get me wrong. I do it. I'm not one of those one, two, three, four people or password people. I do it, and I have a system, and I do all that. I just it gives me anxiety thinking if I'm going to have to change my password and then start all over again. But our Scott Shantz is with us this morning because apparently he's found me a solution.
1: Yeah. Well, I I
5: didn't come up with it. Uh, this solution has kind of been in the
1: works, and it's coming full steam ahead. But yeah, passwords, simi, are definitely the problem, and you're definitely uh, not in the minority with hating doing it. I think everybody, no matter what size office or home you have, we've all experienced something like this.
6: Uh, It's saying the server went down. Does anybody know that password? Because otherwise we can't do any work.
2: Oh, try password. Nope.
1: Try zero, 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 zero,
3: zero, zero. No. Okay, now try zero, zero, zero,
1: zero, 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 one. Okay, I'm not doing every number. Right, we've all we've been there. Right, we've all been there. Yes, so uh, I have. I've experienced this ad nauseum, and you know, you have an iPhone, I have an iPhone, and do you use the face unlock?
5: Yes. Okay, I do I don't trust it one hundred percent because I've told you this story. I believe that my daughter can unlock my phone with her face. Now I know people tell us that we look a lot alike, but that one I can't do her phone. And she is somehow able to do mine. Sure. And that's a thing. And we're, we're sort of new. What these are, they're called biometrics. We're sort of new
1: in the whole biometrics thing. But this is coming. And it's because we're starting to realize, Simi, that passwords, it's, passwords are actually the problem. I spoke with AJ Nadell. He is the chief product officer at a company called Aware. And they master things like biometrics. I started by asking him if, like, essentially, yeah, passwords are becoming obsolete here's what he said
6: absolutely uh you know to put it bluntly passwords are not just obsolete they are the problem uh and most people don't already know it but your passwords are already out there and and just to to lay the grounds, uh we know the average cost of a data breach according to ibm is 4.37 million dollars yet 82 percent of people reuse the same username and password which uh, accounts for the majority of these data breaches. So without a doubt, passwords are a problem.
1: I'm aware that the alternative or, or where we're kind of drifting towards is biometrics. So for people who might not be familiar, can you just give us sort of a Coles Notes understanding of what biometrics are and how, how they work?
6: Yeah, so the, the easiest way to describe biometrics are a metric for who you are right? So we're all familiar with uh, TV shows that show fingerprints or face or iris or your voice. These are all biometrics. And the, the beauty of biometrics is they are incredibly unique to you, uh, meaning nobody else will have the same exact biometrics as you. And that's what makes, makes it so powerful, especially when combating passwords. While people are reusing the same username and password as you, they're not going to be reusing the same biometric because it is uniquely you. And not, not only is that a unique thing, we can tell the difference on a minute scale uh, between you and the person next to you or your family, uh, your friends, to make sure that you're able to uh, leverage your unique characteristics to do whatever you need to do, including logging into a portal.
1: If people were more responsible with passwords, like I appreciate how you say passwords are the problem because year in and year out, we hear that, oh, the most common password is one, two, three, four, five or whatever. But if people used passwords in a more responsible way, would that make any difference?
6: As I mentioned, 82 percent of people reuse the same username and passwords for several of their accounts. But you, you mentioned what if people knew not to do this? 90% 90% of people know that's a bad practice, yet they still use, reuse the same username and password. Why is that? It's several reasons. Passwords are too hard. There are too many accounts. You have too many devices. It, it takes, on average, 14 seconds to type out your passwords. It, it's annoying to remember uh, and also to have to worry about having to change it. And you, you mentioned people being able to hack your accounts. Just looking at pure numbers, if you have a password with six characters, that can be hacked in six minutes or less by anyone. That's that's terrifying. So why is it we're still using this antiquated practice of passwords? I mean, th- this is an artifact of the past. We should be using biometrics for a, a much more secure, a much more scalable, and honestly, much more accessible means of being able to authenticate and present and identify who you are.
1: Okay, now what about the people who are concerned about things like um, personal data and we're giving over, we're volunteering a record of our fingerprints and if the company that we're logging in with, that company that that stores all this information gets hacked somehow, um, now companies have access to and could potentially sell uh, much more um, personal uh, data on on users who are submitting biometrics?
6: Yeah, that, that's a great question. And big question that we get very frequently. You know, the, the most important thing to note with leveraging biometrics for authentication or, or uh, logging into your banking portal, for instance, is we're not actually storing pictures of your biometrics. We're not storing a picture of your face and your fingerprints and your iris and recording of your voice, what we're doing is we're taking that initial image and we're converting it into a template of ones and zeros, something that can be fully encrypted and never reverse engineered such that we're able to protect your identity from the get go and make sure no entity, whether that is Uh, the corporation that might be uh, leveraging it to increase the security of your profile or a hacker trying to get into that, that, uh, corporation.
1: Now I have an iPhone and I use my face ID. That would be, I assume an example of biometrics, And I love it. It's extremely convenient. Yeah. Um, And it seems like very sort of future forward. And it makes sense because, you know, Apple updates its uh, iPhone every year and eventually we're all going to have a new one. But what like what does it look like to incorporate biometrics into the rest of our world? Will it eventually replace like the lock on my car and my car's ignition or my my house keys like those those type of things? What does the future of this implementation look like?
6: That's a great question. And usually when you, you think about the future of, of tech, it means that we're still waiting on some of that technology to be developed. But the technology is already here. We already have uh, customers who are, who are using this technology for verifying somebody's identity, for being able to log into their account, for uh, getting into a building, replacing the, the badge for, for access control this technology is here today. It's just a matter of making sure companies realize that there's a real cost associated with passwords. And it's not just on the data breach side. It's also on being able to support people in password resets, which costs over a million dollars per year per organization on average. Every pointer shows that passwords need to be thrown away.
1: Get rid of them, Simi. No more passwords. I would like to do that. Scan my iris, scan
5: my fingerprints. You can have it all. All right. Well, that's good. To- He's enthusiastic. <laughs> Thank you for that, Scott. That you is our it. Scott chats. If you want to weigh in, Simi at cknw.com.
0: This is Mornings with Simi. At least a day is coming. Um, sometimes you have to wait for something good. I can't go back in the past, but I can certainly look at present day and future.
5: Well, we've known about the negative impacts of social media for years now. I think we have all been slow to act on that. Kids being exploited, kids being bullied, adults being harassed. I mean, there are some positive things about social media, But boy, there are an awful lot of destructive things, too, that we put up with. Well, now the Liberal government thinks that it can do something to mitigate those harms. It is proposing something called the Online Harms Act. And to learn more about it, we are joined now by the Federal Justice Minister Verrani. Minister Verrani, thank you so much for being here.
7: Thank you for having me.
5: What is the Online Harms Act? What will it do? So fundamentally, it's about
7: sort of two concepts. One is about protecting children. And the second piece is about empowering adults. And I think you really addressed it when we talked about sort of who is able to participate in online spaces safely right now. Yesterday at the press conference when we launched this bill, you heard some very compelling testimony from a black woman in uh, Montreal and the kind of invective and abuse she faced, which really chilled her participation in the online space. What we're trying to do is empower that participation in a safe manner by identifying what we see as harmful content. And then there's two sort of categories there. There's content that we feel has no place being online in Canada, uh, and that is content that sexually exploits to child or the non-consensual sharing of an intimate image, what people uh, know, or know as cl- uh, revenge porn. For the other five areas of content, whether that's an incitement to violence, incitement to terrorism, hatred things like bullying a child, uh, inducing a child to commit self-harm. Those are areas that we feel need to be addressed, but we're looking at a model whereby the platforms will provide a safety plan that says here's how we're going to identify the risks, here's how we're going to try and reduce those risks for our users, and we're going to report back to this new commissioner and indicate how how it's going and get guidance from the commissioner about things that need to be enhanced or things that need to be curtailed. Because it's sensitive, but we're trying to get the balance right. And we're also learning from international examples about what looks like an overreach and also what needs to be included. Right. And how, that's how we've crafted the bill.
5: How are you going to get the social media companies, though, to go along with this? Because that is not something that they seem to be willing to do, even in the United States, that has tried to apply pressure to get them to do this. How, how is Canada going to get them to do this?
7: Well, I mean, we're also benefiting from the fact that we're not the only country that's weighted into this, right? There's about five or six different jurisdictions, Germany, Australia, the U.K., France, that have entered into this area. And that's why we're learning from their example. I think social media companies are getting a strong direction, particularly from Western democracies, that the current status quo is not working. And the basic idea is that we know what drives the bottom line for these companies. It is basically clicks or eyeballs on screens that generate ad revenue. So they've got a financial imperative and that's how they're operating what we're saying is that that cannot be your only priority your equal priority must be the safety of canadians and we're saying that we want them to work with us we want them to establish these safety plans we want them to adhere to these safety plans if they do not adhere to either canadian law or their own sets of rules or both there's going to be consequences and that's entrenched in this legislation you may have noted in what we tabled yesterday there are administrative penalties that touch as much as 6% of global revenue or $10 million, whichever is higher. And if there's an order that an offense has occurred under this legislation, the, the the penalty can reach 8% of global revenues. That's going to get the attention of these platforms and induce some of that compliance.
5: Right. There is a five-member digital safety commission as part of this. So who will those people be? Like who gets to decide what is harmful and, and what is not?
7: Yeah, that's a really pivotal question. And on the the commission itself, what's really critical is that we know that we need to not only pass this law and establish that commission, but Canadians in Vancouver and right across the country need to have confidence in that commission. The chief commissioner will be decided upon by a vote in the House of Commons and in the Senate. So Canadians, through their elected representatives, have a say in who that person will be. We want them to have confidence in that person's integrity, professionalism, and objectivity. That's fundamental. Uh, wh- what's really important also is that the decision-making is ultimately for the courts. and We know Canadians have confidence in our administration of justice. And what I mean by that is that an initial decision gets made by a Facebook. That decision gets reviewed by the Digital Safety Commissioner who feels it needs to be tailored or altered. They issue an order. The order by the Digital Safety Commission is ultimately reviewable in a court of law. So the courts of law in this country are the final determiners final adjudicators about something that is as sensitive as what constitutes hatred. And also importantly, I really want to express this to the folks in BC, is that this is not my definition of hatred. This is not, uh, you know, the uh, the government's definition of hatred. This is a definition of hatred that is entrenched in law as established by the Supreme Court that we're codifying. It talks about detestation and vilification. It does not cover things that are insulting, hurtful or offensive expressions of disdain or dislike, that awful but lawful stuff remains awful but lawful. That will remain as part of public discourse. And also importantly, I just want to emphasize this, this doesn't cover private communications. It doesn't cover individual emails or encrypted uh, messages. That is not the subject of this legislation.
5: Okay, so then can you be very clear about what is the subject then? What would be covered under this?
7: So what's, what's critical is when you're sort of engaging in a public forum, uh so if there's a website for example that doesn't have uh that doesn't host user generated content that website is excluded something like twitter and facebook obviously included instagram obviously included it's going to also include things like uh live uh, live uh, streaming services and as well uh adult content sites which which include a uh pornographic content it is very important that we address those platforms that are having user-generated content because we we want to ensure is a safe experience i mean the basic idea that i would put to you is that you know i'm a parent there's parents right around the country that are raising their kids we teach them basic things like how to cross the street but at the same time it's not just looking left and, and looking right we understand that there are rules of the road there are stoplights, and there are speed limits right now we're trying to do the same with the internet we're trying to empower our kids to be responsible and and careful online but we need to also have some safety and sense of peace of mind there are rules for the online space. We don't have those rules, and the rules that are there are very sporadic and inconsistent. We're changing that with this legislation. Are That's we, critical.
5: Are we doing this in conjunction? As you said, there are other countries that are trying this. Is that critical to this, making sure that other countries are also going to try to help get the attention of these big social media companies?
7: Well, I think it's important that there's an emerging consensus among Western democracies. There's no doubt. So as I said, France, Ireland, Australia... Uh, Britain, Germany have already moved in this regard. And what's really important is that people have said to me, uh, whether they're in Vancouver or otherwise, well, it took you a long time to get to this point. And they're right, it did. It took about three and a half years. But that's because we really looked hard at what we thought we would do, which is identify harmful content and say, take it all down within 24 hours. And we looked at how that landed in Germany, how that landed in France. It didn't land well because there was overbreath and too much material coming out of public discourse and there were constitutional problems. I am the Minister of Justice duty-bound to protect that freedom of speech that is entrenched in our charter. I will always do so. So we recalibrated, we altered the model to look at things that are specious and pernicious that have no place in Canadian society, the child pornography issues like uh, in the non-consensual revenge porn, and secondly, looking at a different category of of material that we feel is harmful, but we need to work with the platforms for how to mitigate those risks. How to reduce those risks? So certainly, we're looking at foreign jurisdictions. We're learning from them, and we're implementing what I feel is a very careful approach, a very measured approach, a very appropriate response to how to, uh, to how to enter into this area.
5: Well, Minister Varani, thank you for your time this morning. Thank
7: you very much for having me.
5: That is Arif Varani, Minister of Justice and the Attorney General of Canada, talking about the Online Harms Act. Liberal government is bringing this in. Listen, if it works, great question's always going to be in the details, right? Can we make this work? Can it make children safer so that, uh, like Amanda Todd and like Retea Parsons, that they don't suffer harms of what happens to them online? Found a way in, send at cknw.com. There'll be a lot of discussion about this. It's going to be about how they define that harm. How easy will it be for parents and children to say, this is happening to me and it needs to stop, and then, as a result, something changes. Uh, can they do that? Other countries are trying. We will see. Canada's going to try, too.
0: This is Mornings with Simi.
5: So our clock here right now at CKNW is telling me that it is eight thirty six and 42.00, 43.00. 44 seconds. It's pretty accurate. I'm sure we're off by a couple of seconds though, but we're pretty accurate here. And I know that for some people, keeping absolute accurate time is very important. And here's why I'm telling you this. Our next guest is kind of a superstar in the world of keeping time. And yes, there is such a thing. I am one of those people who likes to keep my watch running ahead by a few minutes to make sure I'm always on time instead of late, right? To keep myself on track. But There are people who have to have their watch, their time, their clock set to the absolute correct time. And you know what? You can thank our next guest for that, as a matter of fact. Dr. Demetrius Matsakis is with us, the chief consultant for the clockmaking company Master Clock and former chief scientist for the United States Naval Observatory's Time Services. Dr. Matsakis, thank you so much for being with us.
3: Glad to be here.
5: You've never been late for anything, have you?
3: I wouldn't say that. <laughs> no.
5: How do you set your clock? How I do you would. do it?
3: You well know, it's very easy when you have a smartphone. I don't. I don't carry a watch. People think it's a big deal, but when you have a smartphone, the time's there. You can't get away from it.
5: So why don't you care? Why do so you I wear a watch?
3: I don't, uh, because well, I never did. I like to experience time better, and if you're spending all the time measuring it, you might miss something. Uh, It's important to measure it. It's my whole lifetime career is based on measuring it. But for the human, the humanity, it's very interesting to see the difference uh, when you you do know the time and when you don't.
5: Okay. How did you get into measuring time for a living?
3: It was a, a, a giant coincidence. I was a radio astronomer doing conventional, not conventional, radio astronomy, observing the heavens, and one day the director of the department at the Naval Observatory came to see me, and he said they had a new kind of clock that was based on optical pumping, which is sort of like laser, the laser principle, and there were no physicists who knew how to work with it. Would I like to start the project? And I said, absolutely, I'd love to do that. So I started doing that. And then a few years later, everybody retired and I became the director of the, of the time service department of the Naval Observatory.
5: So, Dr. Matsakis, how do we set the time?
3: We, the time is now based on a transition of a cesium atom. Basically, you have a cesium atom that can flip between states and give off radiation. That radiation oscillates up and down. We count them. And every 9,192,631,770 of them are one second. So that's the definition of a second, that many oscillations of the radiation of a cesium atom. So we have atomic clocks, can have cesiums, or they can have other elements that are related to cesium, and we measure their oscillations. Then all you have to do is know the start time, so you can go from that, and you get that by comparing that to other clocks whose start time we know.
5: You just made it sound so easy, but it's also very complicated. So then what is a leap second?
3: It was discovered early on in the 1920s, actually, when uh, clocks, before there were atomic clocks, that the Earth does not rotate perfectly smoothly. It can speed up and slow down. And historically, I mean, prehistorically, like in the dinosaur days, the Earth was rotating a lot faster, like 18 to 20 hours faster, depending on when you're talking about in the dinosaur days. So the Earth has been slowing down. And and uh, with atomic clocks, you, uh, you can see day-to-day variations in the rotation of the Earth. And that's all fine. We can sort of average out those day-to-day things. But what do you do if your atomic time tells you Uh, that the sun is supposed to rise at a certain time and it's actually rising uh, later and later because the earth is slowing down. And so there was a conference in 1970, actually several conferences leading up to that, where they decided that we'd go by the atomic clocks and when the discrepancy with the time that's kept by sunrise and sunsets was more than one second or nine-tenths of a second, we would Add a second to the atomic time to keep all the time scales in line.
5: And so, how often do we do this?
3: Well, the Earth is notoriously unpredictable on this scale. So, the last time we did it was in January of 2017. But in the beginning, when this first started in the 70s, it was once a year we were doing it. Yeah, but then the Earth. Although it was slowing down, started slowing down less and less. So we added it less frequently and less frequency. And for a while, two years ago, the Earth started speeding up again. And we were wondering how we would handle that. We would probably do a negative leap second. Instead of adding a second, we would just ignore a second and skip over it. But now the Earth has started slowing down again. So that's not an so the this, negative leap second won't happen.
5: So this is like an ongoing issue. We can't just say, "Oh, that's the time," and leave it at that.
3: No, we cannot. And in fact, uh, it's more than it's an unpredictable issue. So while it's okay for humans to leave a second to lose a second or add one, computers don't like that one bit. And for the the last several leap second insertions in our computerized world, there have been lots of problems. Things systems have. Stop working. Then an a famous one was people were grounded in Australia that were on Qantas airlines because their computer went on the blink.
5: All because and they were trying to add a second.
3: Reservations. Yeah. And the computer didn't know about it. And the thing is it happens so rarely people don't know. People can't predict it. Most computer programmers don't know anything about leap seconds. And even if they did, Sometimes there are things you can't do for certain applications because if you're adding a second, it just doesn't fit into the system quite right. You go from 59 seconds, 60 seconds, 61, how to add that in, you can have two two different times that have the same second count sometimes in the system. And that's why a movement started to stop doing all that. We're asking, why are we doing this? Why don't we let the two timescales diverge? We can just live by atomic time and let the sun do its thing. So in, in a century, we will be off by less than a minute between the two scales before we get off. And maybe, and one of the ideas was, let's wait a thousand years when we're off by an hour. And then, and then we can uh, skip a transition between daylight time and uh, standard time for those countries that follow daylight time. And everything's back in sync.
5: That so is the real, emo- is of the real definition of kicking the can down the road, Dr. Matsakis.
3: Well, that's what people say. And what I say is, yeah, it, it's for those people that are uh, emotional about it. I say that when the time comes, a thousand years from now, people are going to say, why do we got to do this? Let's just skip it and stay with atomic time. It won't, By then, society will adjust. It's such a slow change that uh, it won't really have affected anything. There'd be no reason to go back. But also... it would be maybe, for the future generations.
5: Right, but by then also, decide. is there a different way perhaps of telling time? Because over the last thousand years, how we measure time has gotten more and more accurate and different.
3: That's right. It's gotten more precise, faster than Moore's law predicts for computers getting better. Time has gotten... The accuracy of time has gotten even more better. Yeah, there'll be different ways, but the Earth won't it will still be doing its thing and the atomic time will just be telling time better and better. So the clocks at, uh, at the Naval Observatory that I, I was so proud of building or uh, supervising the building of would lose one second every 300,000 years in, in plus or minus. Now the ones that are coming online and will be operational pretty soon will lose, will lose plus or minus one second over the whole age of the universe Wow so yes, time will be getting told much more precisely and accurately
5: This
3: is fascinating but society society just to realize also that a thousand years from now, society will be so different uh, just compared to how it was a thousand years ago to how it is now, and the pace of acceleration is going further unless a big catastrophe happens, which many might predict, but following just the trend. So we don't have to worry about the deep future.
5: Right. But there are. But Dr. Matsakis, you know what, We're, we're all out of time here. But listen, thank you so much for describing that to us. It was absolutely fascinating you're welcome. Appreciate that. Dr. Demetrios (laughs) Matsakis. So interesting, right? Chief consultant for the clockmaking company MasterClock and the former chief scientist for the United States Naval Observatory's Time Services, teaching us about something called a leap second. I know this year is a leap year, but a leap second, maybe we don't really need it. You talk about being precise with your time. Whoa.